here in our year of the Lord 2022, what is it, you know, that attracts you to a new IDE when, you know, it's going to cause you problems, like you're going to have to learn new things and it's going to give you bugs and, you know, why make a switch like that? Oh, that's an excellent question. So I've been using Visual Studio pretty much since I started as a developer. I've always been doing C-sharp of some kind. And uh, so lately I've been using Visual Studio 2022. And at first switching from 2019, it felt better. It felt snappier. It felt, you know, well, once I turned off all of the code suggestions that they were kept screwing <laughs> up my muscle memory on typing, <laughs> then it felt a lot better. So it was slowing you down. Whoa, it was. This is, it's not the CACD pipeline. It's my, <laughs> my actual IDE that's causing 90% of my problems. The other 10 are just me. As large organizations find themselves navigating their way around hybrid cloud, developers are being asked to shift their priorities as well as their mindset for this new world. For insight on new cloud architectures, deployment strategies, and the shifting culture landscape, tune into Cisco's podcast, Cloud Unfiltered. Here comes the URL. It's cs.co slash podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast, a place to talk all things software and technology. I am Ben Popper, the director of content here at Stack Overflow, joined as I often am by my wonderful co-hosts, Cassidy and Siora. Hi, y'all. Hello. Hi. So for those who don't know, Cassidy Williams helps with our newsletter, a co-creator and designer of The Key and head of education and developer experience at Remote. Yeah, good memory. Wow. Oh, nailed it. <laughs> and Siora Ford, another host on the podcast and is a developer advocate at Apollo GraphQL. Yep. And today we are joined by a colleague and friend of mine, Adam Lear, who is a senior software engineer at Stack Overflow. Hey, Adam. Hey, hey, I have upgraded. It's staff now. Oh, oh. I play in the bigger leagues. I don't know what it means, but I have the title. Good for you. <laughs> Nobody Congrats. knows what those titles mean. <laughs> I am now a senior director, which matches my identity as a geriatric millennial. So I'm both senior <laughs> and geriatric, <laughs> whatever that's good for. All right, y'all. So we're going to do the show the way we've been running it for the last few weeks. We're going to start with some news. Microsoft GitHub on Wednesday said customers using its code spaces, hosted development environments, can try out pre-built systems in a public beta test. So a pre-built code space, it's a template with some source code, code editor extensions, project dependencies, commands, blah, 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 blah. And you get all this pre-packaged instead of building from scratch. Let me throw it to the three people on the call who might actually write code for a living, not me. What are your thoughts on this? It's not particularly novel, in my opinion. Like, it's cool, but it's not like mm -hmm. other things haven't been doing this. Like if you wanted to do a code sandbox and say, I want to start with a React project, you can click a button and it's just done. Tiara, you worked at Code Sandbox, right? I did. I did. You're absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, you all know I'm a lazy developer. Aren't I'm all for all? anything that's going to make getting started easier. <laughs> no, don't put so... you say, make it more accessible to everyone. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's a better way to, to say it. But if the, you know, pre-built, Code Spaces does that, takes out all the annoying stuff like dependencies and starter templates and stuff like that. I'm all for it. You know, I don't have a problem with it. The sooner you can get to building the important stuff, the better. It kind of makes me think of Glitch a little bit, yeah. but it yeah. is on a, like a broader scale. And I know internally, one of our developers here, Samo, he's been trying to get Stack Overflow running inside a code space. He's made some good progress on it too. Uh, so <laughs> far, well, last I heard, we can at least run unit tests nice. in it, not necessarily do a full upload, but maybe someday we'll be 
replacing our local development environment with a code space. And, you know, the less setup it has, the better. Yeah, I wonder what languages the templates are available in. Because a lot of times, like starter templates are usually code sandbox anyway. They were much more focused on people in the JavaScript ecosystem and React ecosystem. I wonder if they have a broader language availability. I like the idea that we're going to get to the point, Adam, where it's like, you know how you can, the goal is to run Doom on anything? Like I can run Doom on a, an SD card. So it'd be like, I can run Stack Overflow on my MP3 player. No problem. <laughs> there we go. That's how we're going to, instead of the data dumps that we do now, we exactly. just uh, ship you a uh, I don't know, little device, maybe with the key connected to it. So you can just Perfect. grab what you need and move on. Exactly. But Cassidy, I like what you're saying. This is more like it's an, yeah, like a forward thinking company like Glitch or Code Sandbox is kind of offering that. So this is the big player in the space kind of trying to play a little bit of catch up and make, you know, do some of the things they see people are interested in that are already out there. Right. And it's I could see it being really useful for enterprise teams too, because I used to work at Amazon. I have friends who are over at Google, my my sister's over at Meta, and a lot of their code bases, or, or at least certain teams, they basically have to go into a virtual machine anyway and write their code on a machine anyway that isn't on their own device. And so this feels like it's just a more accessible way of doing that without having to run some kind of virtual machine to run a whole actual computer to run an IDE that's already hosted elsewhere. (laughs) That's a good point. I mean, for us, it would also enable, say, designers to be able to spin up the app real quick without having to go through all of the local setup and having the hardware to do it and maintaining it and making sure, you know, in the six months since the last time they really needed it, that nothing broke. At Code Sandbox, one of our biggest user bases, I guess is like the fancy way to say it, with students. So right. students, a lot of times when they're learning, you know, you want to teach them the fundamentals. Nobody wants to, here's how you do this and here's how you install this. And then you have to set this up. Like nobody, when you're teaching a class, you would rather skip over that and get to the nitty gritty and maybe go to the specific details later. Mm-hmm. So this could be great for students as well. There's a lot of great use cases for something like this. So I think it's cool. Yeah, and what you're saying makes sense. We talked about this, I think, maybe it was with you, Cassidy, back when you were at Netlify, but like an area where you can just do some staging for Dev or Prod, but then also you could be like, hey, design, come in and look at this, you know, and play it, yeah. tweak it here, or marketing, you know, you're going to have a stakeholder here, come in and look and play around with some of the variables without actually letting them in to, you know, muck up the the real code base. Right. That's something that Netlify did release while I was there was it was it was like collaborative deploy previews. And so yeah, let's exactly. just say you mm. did launch a page, but you wanted to put it on a branch, for example, you didn't want it to go live yet. You could give that link to anyone on the team, whether they're design team, marketing, anyone, and they can mark it up. They can say this needs to be adjusted and stuff like that. And it would go directly into the pull request for people to update. It was really sick, honestly, and and, and still is. It's, it's, yeah. it's really, really cool. And I could see something like this being the next level of it and integrate with something like that really well. All right, so I have one here that I I know will raise some hackles, at least Adam and Sierra, I know your feelings on this particular part of the space, but Polygon, which is a company in the blockchain space, raised $450 million to build out its developer ecosystem. And so I guess there's two things we could do here. We could weigh in on our thoughts about this, but more broadly, what this makes me think is like, will there inevitably be a pretty big shift of developers moving in and trying out, you know, this area of technology and experimenting with it and getting their feet wet simply because there's so much money going into that area, you know, for them to hire. Like part of it might be actual interest in the technology, obviously, but some of it is just, you know, resources, you know, flow into one area. And so like inevitably, you know, some headcount is going to follow. But (laughs) Let me step back and let people weigh in. 
I have a very cynical view on this. Okay. <laughs> and I, I may not be alone. I feel like, you know how sometimes when the world is being wild, you're just like, I'm just watching our world be dictated by some rich people and I have to follow. I feel like a lot of blockchain stuff and interest in blockchain stuff and the motivations behind Web3 and everything is that, where it's just because there's so much money going into it, because rich people say money should go into it, it is growing. And I'm sure that's a very, very, very cynical point of view. And once again, we've talked about all the various use cases on this podcast about certain things that could be useful, but people follow money. And because people have money flowing in that direction, that's where people are going to go. Right. I have a couple thoughts on this too, that probably align a lot with you, Cassidy. I think another thing with it is like, obviously, you know, this this company is getting $450 million, like, just to build out their developer ecosystem. That's a lot of money. Yeah. So I do think that this is a similar thing happening with a lot of crypto companies where they're raising tons of money. They're hiring like crazy. They're giving astonishing salaries to developers of all levels. So I think a part of it is money. I do think a large part of it as well is fear of missing out. I've heard a lot of people say that they don't want to be left behind, that they would rather be ahead yep. of the curve. And because it's still a relatively new space, they want to be one of the decision makers to kind of shape where it goes in the future. Mm. I think that is wishful thinking to think at this point you can do that. But power to the people who think that way. I've talked about this before. I tend to be very cynical when it comes to anything. So I hope that I get proven wrong as far as that's concerned, but I do hear a lot of people say like, oh yeah, I want to be one of the ones that like helps shape this space. And I'm like, I think it's already shaped mm. as far as it's going to go. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know if we can really, I don't know, but that's kind of my thought as well. I feel kind of similarly <laughs> to all of so plus one to all, all right, of that. All right. I mean, like blockchain as a technology has been around for what, 10 years now, something like yeah, that yeah. to that effect. So I feel like the core building blocks, kind of no pun intended, are pretty much in place. What people do with that, I mean, so far I haven't seen any application that to me felt practical or significantly different uh, from kind of what you can already do without Web3 and without the blockchain. But maybe, you know, additional resources, more minds put to it, maybe something will come out of that. I would be happy to be proven wrong. All right. So let me, I'm just going to come to the blockchain's defense and then we'll move on so I don't get piled on. <laughs> Typical Ben. A couple things here. One, yes, like it's like, you know, well, we've um, heard about blockchain for a while. They're obviously raising money. Like what exactly are they doing? So just to sort of, you know, dive a little deeper, there are projects like Decentraland and OpenSea and Uniswap that rely, I guess, at least in part on this Polygon chain. And so there's a h- unbelievable amount of activity there. Whether we think it's like, activity that is long-term, you know, good for the world or will be a flash in the pan. You know, Uniswap in the span of a few years has grown to where people are trading billions of dollars on it every day. You can have your views on whether or not that what they should be trading, but like it's basically grown into like a full-size stock market in no time. And uh, OpenSea, you know, is sort of the equal equivalent for an auction house for NFTs and art. You can have your view on them, but people are, you know, creating and getting paid and, and trying to bet on art. And then Decentraland is the most annoying But people are paying millions of dollars to own virtual real estate. And I will not have you say that that is not a consumer use case. So Virtual real estate? (laughs) Like in Second Life? Yes, exactly. Yes. So Decentraland is like a big, it's just like a big Minecraft Second Life style place 
But people for years now have been buying, like owning land there and then developing it and this and this and that. And then they sell it for ungodly amounts of money. So that blows my haters going to hate. There was a rave in Decentraland a couple of weeks ago, I think. Yeah. There's been videos floating around Twitter. It's a community of like-minded individuals. It's a thing. Um, but seriously, I hope someday in my life I have millions of dollars to invest in virtual real estate. That's, uh, I think, all I'm going to say about that. I'm just saying if I have millions of dollars, I'm going to spend it in real life and mm. and probably get away from all of this. <laughs> I will say, though, there are a lot of I've seen so many tweets where people are like so many smart top tier developers are moving into the crypto space. And like, it's true. There is a huge migration of developers who are moving on to fintech companies. Like I've seen it happen so often where someone's like, my new opportunity is at this crypto startup. So I do think this is indicative of a bigger change in the tech industry. Yeah. There is an idea we've discussed a few times on the show, which is that, you know, like every generation of developers wants their chance to sort of like build from scratch. Or if you got to create web 1.0, that was fun. Web 2.0, mobile web, social web. You know, so it's interesting to say, oh, I'm going to get on what's still the ground floor of web three. And then just to, yeah, some of, there's a bunch of stuff in here about all the different hubs they're opening across different parts of Africa for people to to build on Polygon. And I do think it's like, if you come in and the, there's obviously already extremely established players who own big parts of the web or own mobile or own social, it's exciting as a young person to be like, well, this is, there's still some greenfield here, you know, like we haven't totally figured it out. So this is my chance to, you know, get in sort of when there's still a lot of potential ahead of, but. We can disagree about what kind of potential there is for the blockchain. (laughs) There is so much potential. And and the thing is, like, I genuinely do see great use cases for things like innovating in the banking space because banking is ancient, especially in the United States. And from what I've seen is is so many years behind other countries and and so many things like that. I I genuinely think that there's room for innovation. And if this is the solution, that's great. What I don't like to see is people creating scarcity when they're doesn't need to be. Like what's great about the internet and about the web is that things can be free and open. And if you want to own space on the internet, you can just create it. You don't need to buy it Mm. and someone else might take it from you. Copy it. That's possible. So creating all of this kind of scarcity at the cost of the environment and at the cost of people's wallets who wouldn't necessarily afford to be able to get it on the ground floor of things, that's where I and more of a skeptic. It's a fair take. All right, let me push us forward here. We've got two topics of the day. So this one is from uh, developertech.com news. It's about Java developer productivity. So the main idea here is developers are finding that microservices and CICD are decreasing rather than increasing their productivity. So I'm interested in takes here. I think this might be kind of the old saw of like the pendulum that swings. We need to get more abstracted, you know, and we need to get less abstracted, more centralized, more decentralized, you know, back and forth. So the tools that we thought were going to help us now maybe are overbuilt. But yeah, give me some thoughts on what, you know, you're finding in your work or with the people around you when it comes to microservices, CI, CD. I know microservices many, many times on this podcast have been, oh, we'll solve all our problems. Oh, it's actually <laughs> introduced 10x the complexity. Sorry. <laughs> I don't think there's any developer out there who has been like, no, tests have never blocked me from merging anything. Like it, it's just a thing <laughs> that happens. And so yeah, I'm, this yeah. this news story does not surprise me because there have been so many times where I'm like, oh, just because I like had an extra line break here or something, or the linter is really, really strong, or or these kinds of other CI rules that are are very, very picky are causing issues. I can I can totally see that. And and there's pros and cons to it because if you let it be relaxed, then your code base quality could 
go by the wayside. And and so there is a fine balance, I think, to all of this. Also, for those listening who don't know what that means, it's continuous integration. I've definitely had a lot of roadblocks with CICD, especially as someone who's newer and who initially, like my first developer-ish job, I didn't really know much about like tests and things like that or anything about like how CICD works. I had like a broad, super, super high level understanding of like what DevOps was in the first place, but never had to like build out any kind of CICD pipeline or anything like that. And it definitely for me was a huge blocker, especially, you know, when you're on a team where you don't have as much opportunity to like pair program with other people and like get mentorship. Like it was definitely a blocker sometimes where you're trying to like merge something, even something simple, like edit some copy on like the company's website or whatever. And like you run into issues with the CICD and it's like, oh, it it definitely, I think, can become a blocker. And sometimes it is necessary, but I do think it can, it has huge potential to become like bloated in a way where it's just like too much and starts to do the opposite. Just like the, I don't know. I mean, I think we have to think about like, what is developer productivity, right? Like, is it our product being relatively error-free, but like taking longer for us to build? Or is it us breaking things, but building fast? Like, what does that mean for you and your team or your project or whatever? So I think that's definitely a part of it. But like, depending on where you fall on that will dictate how you feel about whether or not microservices and CICD really affects your productivity. Based on just kind of the this little like article report uh, that we've all looked at here, I was kind of not sure why microservices and CI/CD were kind of talked about in the same. That's spot. true; they're different they're things. Kind of very, very yeah. separate things. Yeah. You know, like you can do CI/CD without any microservices, or you know, the other way around. Probably, uh, I don't know why you would do that, but that sounds painful. <laughs> and, and even within the CI/CD space, there's so many ways, you, so many things you can do with that, right? Like, yes, you could be running all of your tests as part of you know whatever steps you have. You could also just you know compile things and ship them to production right away. Maybe Maybe don't do that, uh, but, <laughs> uh, or at least you know be very careful. But to me, those tools are really about kind of making sure that the entire dev team is kind of on the same page uh, when it comes to at least some sort of baseline quality of the code that's going to be ready to go. We can all agree, you know, okay, let's we read up linters earlier, so you know, yeah, we all agree that we should format our code the particular way. What's the best way to actually make sure that that happens and that becomes you know, part of the CICD pipeline in most cases. And I think, you know, yeah, there's definitely a trade-off there, though, between the time it takes, the more the more steps you add, the, the longer it takes. Maybe some things become required to actually deploy something, maybe some don't. It really kind of depends on the team. And in some cases, honestly, just the severity of things being uh, built out. If we have, like, an urgent bug, well... Some would argue that's probably not the time to actually go lax on your checks <laughs> before <laughs> fixing something like that. But maybe that's the time where you can, you know, kind of abandon the linter for five minutes. Yeah, I think that makes sense. You know, from like a, a less technical perspective, it's sort of, yeah, the endless debate of like, well, you know, rules and structure are going to help ensure that nothing breaks and we actually go faster, like Sierra said, overall. But the other, you know, flip side of that is like, well, things just feel increasingly bureaucratic and there's so much red tape. And so for me building it, like it feels like a real slog, you know? So it's yeah, yeah. Like the end user experience might benefit, but the developer productivity might suffer, which is an interesting sort of conundrum. On the microservice side, I think the point the original author is like trying to make is that although both things are in two different realms, they somehow both can impede developer productivity, although that was not the original intention. Right. I'm kind of a fan of 
Yeah, I'll say it. I'm kind of a fan of microservices because I think overall it's better to use microservices instead of building everything out yourself. Right. Like I said, I tend to be a very lazy developer, so I don't want to have to build anything. That I don't absolutely have to. I think a lot of bigger companies have a gigantic mono repo of all the things. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think a lot of bigger companies choose to build all their tooling and things like that internally themselves. But I think that could be a huge barrier to entry for especially smaller teams. So microservices could definitely help with that. We've discussed before on the podcast, like things that could you know, be detrimental for a team if you're using, relying on too many microservices. But I don't know. I like to think in general, they're pretty cool. Like they kind of like help more than they hurt, I would like to say, but I don't know. It's also not always third-party microservices too. Like you can build all of your microservices in-house and stuff. And I think that's what this one is talking about. Oh, is it? Oh, yeah. I do think that this is like one of those things where they did a survey and there were two things that hurt developer productivity that like they wanted to put in the headline. Like they're not necessarily related. They just took yeah, you know, grab two things. It reminds me of the debate with TypeScript where like if I'm building my own side project and something like just for myself, I'm not going to use TypeScript. It's just going to make the whole thing so verbose and so strict on everything. But if I'm building something with a team, it's kind of nice to have those guardrails in place and rules so that way things can't go awry and, and everything is kind of clean and kept in check. And some might still say that it's still overkill. And then other people are just like, no, I need this because otherwise my code will be trash. It's a balance with everything. I totally get your point on that because I haven't used TypeScript yet, but my issue with JavaScript was always that like, I felt like it was too lenient sometimes. I felt like I needed more guardrails. Mm. And although everyone, not everyone, but a lot of developers do complain about how strict TypeScript can be. I'm always like, I kind of want to try it out just because Sometimes I feel like I need that. So I do get your point with that. <laughs> I'm kind of curious on the survey too, if there was any breakdown by kind of size of project. Because, yeah. uh, you know, as a company grows, as a project grows, your build times will go up just because you have more things right. uh, to build, more, you know, more classes to compile or whatever. There's always going to be some sort of lower bound on us as fast as you can get it. Yeah, but I also tend to be of the opinion that like not everything has to be super fast. I don't know. I think sometimes companies are obsessed with like, we got to build fast and innovate fast and just fast, fast, fast. And I don't know if I agree with that all the time. Like, I feel like, you know, it's okay to, it's okay to sacrifice the speed in order to have like better code, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's the sentence I'm going to stick with. All right. So we have Adam on the show who has a ton of experience at Stack Overflow. So I I feel like, yeah, I want to spend the time we have left just going over something that's a little bit more personal to you. Adam, you were asking around internally some questions about how to debug locally, Stack Overflow and Rider and Windows. But the more interesting question here, I guess, is why change from Visual Studio to Rider here in our year of the Lord 2022? What is it you know, that attracts you to a new IDE when it, you know, it's going to cause you problems, like you're going to have to learn new things and it's going to give you bugs? You know, you know, why make a switch like that? Oh, that's an excellent question. So I've been using Visual Studio pretty much since I started as a developer. I've always been doing C-sharp of some kind. And uh, so lately I've been using Visual Studio 2022. And at first switching from 2019, it felt better. It felt snappier. It felt, you know, well, once I turned off all of the code suggestions that they were kept screwing <laughs> up my muscle memory on typing, <laughs> then it felt a lot better. So it was slowing you down. Whoa, it was. This is, it's not the CACD pipeline. It's my, <laughs> my actual IDE that's causing 90% of my problems. The other 10 are just me. Uh, mm, but um, yeah, so anyway, 
we now run Stack Overflow on .NET Core. So we have a bunch of developers who have been developing on a Mac instead of Windows, which has been kind of great. And they've been using uh, Writer from JetBrains. So I figured I'd give it another shot. I tried it, I think, a couple years ago, maybe a year ago. And like, like you said, the learning curve was a little too much for what I kind of wanted to uh, right. deal with at the time. Uh, so I went back to my comfortable spot. But um, I figured I'd try it again. And I mean, I don't know about y'all. I'm one of those people. Like I like to change up my environment a little bit once in a while. I'll swap in a different keyboard. I'll, you know, it's like getting a fresh notebook, <laughs> basically. It's, uh, you know, sometimes all you need to kind of unblock is a slight change. And so changing the ID kind of fit that a little bit. And honestly, I love Rider right now. The search is a lot faster. Oh. IntelliSense doesn't break half the time. It's I don't want to like be too critical of Visual Studio. It is still, I think, one of the dominant or if not the dominant way to write uh, kind of .NET stuff. But yeah, so far, very positive impressions. Yeah, that's an interesting thing you mentioned about like changing up your environment to like kind of, I don't know, give you a little spruce in your, you know, daily routine. I recently spilled salad dressing on my keyboard oh, no. and my keyboard isn't working anymore. <laughs> so I had to order a new one and suddenly I'm like, it hasn't come yet, but like I'm all hyped up. Like I keep checking the tracking every day and I feel myself getting more interested. Like maybe I can like try out a new project or whatever. And then I kind of, it kind of clicked for me. I was like, is this why people are so like obsessed with like you know, set up in yes. keyboards and different things like that. Because I feel myself like being more interested in writing and coding now that I like, and the keyboard isn't even here yet. So I totally, now that you said it, it kind of like clicked in my head. So yeah. Humans crave novelty. And when, you right. ha- when you're staring at code and stuff all day, it's nice to change things up. And I'm really, I'm really curious about Rider now. I admit I hadn't actually seen it before. I've seen other JetBrains products. They have a cool JetBrains mono font that I like to use, but it seems neat. I'm, I'm looking at the website now. I haven't done .NET in literally 10 years, but it, it seems sick. I think the sort of like kick in the pants that Sierra was talking about and novelty, it's also like the beginner mindset. You know, you come to something and you're new and you're forced to learn that like gets the creative juices going, kind of gives your brain that extra energy. And then that can spill over to, yeah, whatever the regular work is you're doing, which is nice. Yeah, absolutely. All right, everybody, it is that time of the show. We are going to shout out some recommendations of things we enjoyed and we think you might too. So this week I will shout out a interesting book that I've been reading it's called Apple Seed, and it imagines a sort of futuristic world with a lot of robots and genetically engineered farms, and then ties it back to sort of like an early pre-industrial America that was being colonized and like skips back and forth between those two, those two times. So yeah, Apple Seed, you can, you can get it in bookstores or grab it from the library or whatever. Been enjoying it. I'll put the link in the show notes. Cool. That sounds interesting. I'd like to recommend an app called Centered. It's something that I kind of dabbled with at first, and now I'm really, really into it. And it's a productivity app. And and so you can find it at centered.app. And at first, when you look at it, you're just like, okay, it's a glorified to-do list. Is that, <laughs> is that it? And But then once you actually use it, it, what's cool is it relies on the flow concept. You know how when you get into flow and, and are really, really productive, what you do is you kind of say, okay, here are the tasks that I want to do during a given flow session. And you can assign like how much time you want to give yourself for each of those tasks. And then when you click start flow, 
it plays like that kind of brain music that makes you like work and and I don't know how yeah. the science of that kind of stuff <laughs> happens, but where it's like kind of repetitive but a good rhythm. It plays that and there's like a little coach that kind of keeps an eye on you where if you start like farting around on Twitter, he'll be just like, hey, <laughs> are you staying focused? And you'll be just like, oh, okay. And and like I've gotten so much done with this app where I was kind of just trying it as an experiment. And now I'm kind of obsessed because I've gotten more done using the flow app than I have in like months. If it's in the app, it's going to get done and it's going to get done in a certain amount of time. And if you go over time, it doesn't punish you. It's just like, Hey, just so you know, you're over time. It gives you breaks. It's really good at just kind of keeping you focused. And and for someone like me who likes to dabble on Twitter or other various things throughout the day, it's it's been really, really helpful for me to get stuff done. Is this an, a mobile app or like a web it's, app? It's a both? desktop app. I think you can use the web as well, but it, it works on Windows, Linux, Apple. Very cool. I want to shout out something completely unrelated to Ooh. anything that we talked about today. <laughs> but um, uh, I've been watching a lot of YouTube. And in particular, I got really into this channel by this person who works on their own uh, Linux OS or Unix-like OS. So Andreas Kling uh, has a channel where he works on Serenity OS and uh, kind of takes you through basically his like work sessions on the project. And I've picked up a lot of like cool tips for just how I, I approach development myself, breaking kind of really big, like seemingly impossible things down into more manageable bits. The project is in C++, of course, which I do not know, but I think I'm starting to pick up <laughs> some things as well, just by osmosis. It's like so many asterisks. Yeah. So if you want a chill like development channel to follow, maybe also get involved in the project if that's your bag, serenityos.org has links to all of the things that you might need. That's so cool. Cool. The thing I want to shout out is it's a blog post, but it is basically a talk that was turned into a blog post by the person who gave the talk. So the person who gave the talk, her name is Tanya Riley. And it's called Being Glue. And it's basically about this thing that happens when you are on a team and you start to if you're the kind of person who likes to fill in the gaps, you're like a facilitator, that kind of mindset, you start to kind of like do a lot of the managerial work that usually managers do or project managers do. And it kind of turns you away from doing your primary job function, although you are supporting the team. And this is a trap that a lot of people can fall into, especially when they work on a small team or when like a manager leaves or coworkers leave or whatever the case may be. And the downfall is that because you get stuck doing this glue work or the stuff that keeps the team together and on track, when it comes time for like performance reviews and stuff like that, you tend to not get the promotions because you're missing out on like your primary job function because you're doing all the glue work. So I really found this blog post really useful because I've read it like months ago and I reread it again. And this time I like took little notes on it or whatever. And I just think it's a really helpful like career reminder for a lot of people because Doing the glue work feels productive, but it's not really for you. Like if you don't want to be a manager, if you don't want to be a project manager, then maybe it's not best to do this kind of work. So that the blog post kind of like breaks down how to get out of the habit of doing that and like 
you know, it's also hard to say no, you know, like if you're a kind person and you want other people to like you and you know, you just like, Oh yeah, I can help with that. Oh, you need a little, you know, but it's just like something to be like, no, I don't have any, that has nothing to do with what I'm focused on or my KPIs or where I need to, you know? Yeah. I just pulled it up and it resonates so deeply. I've been mentoring this one gal who is early at a startup and literally the entire list of glue work that she lists on this blog is what this gal is doing. Yeah. And I do think that it's a good thing if you're recognized for it. And like, if they right. realize that, okay, this is becoming part of your job, let's compensate you fairly for it, give you titles for it, that sort of thing. But if it's just resulting in you not getting your code done, that's where it starts to become a problem. Yeah. Or like, if you do want to be a project manager or you want to be a manager of your team, it makes sense to do this work. But if not, maybe you should kind of rethink what you're doing with your career. And it like goes through ways that you can do that. So it's super, super valuable if like you find yourself in that position. I've also found myself kind of in a slightly similar position a few months ago. You know, I've been at Stack Overflow for 10 years now. As, you know, the team grows and we hire more and more people, I end up just fielding a lot of questions and a lot of, you know, onboarding things and like little things here and there. So I've had to learn to at least like put Slack on mute for a bit and uh, not feel like I have to jump into everything, even though I naturally want to help people and I want to be helpful and I want to support everybody that I work with. But sometimes I just need to make sure I get uh, my own things done as well. I would be interested to know at a company like, oh, Expensify, where you only get raised or promoted based on what all of your peers say about you. Maybe the glue person really can thrive in that environment because everybody likes you. (laughs) Once again, if you're recognized for it, it works. But if it's just like, wait, no, what was your technical contribution? That's when it starts to get hairy. To be clear, I mean, I have been recognized for doing that, but I've I've started to kind of back off a little bit for personal reasons. I like coding. (laughs) I I miss it. (laughs) All right, everybody. Well, thank you so much for all the recs and the conversation. We really appreciate it. Let me see if we got a fresh lifeboat. I will shout it out and then we will say goodbye. So then we don't have any new lifeboats. That's when I get to go to the weird badges. (laughs) (laughs) Ask a well-received question on five separate days. Who was curious today? Thank you to Abhishek Chakrabotri, awarded one hour ago. Abhishek, you've been very curious and maintained a good reputation. So congratulations to you. All right, everybody. I am Ben Popper, the director of content here at Stack Overflow. Find me on Twitter at Ben Popper, email us podcast at Stack Overflow, and leave a rating and a review if you like the show. I'm Cassidy Williams. You can find me at Cassidoo, C-A-S-S-I-D-O-O on most things. And I'm the head of developer experience and education at Remote. I'm Sierra Ford. I am a developer advocate at Apollo GraphQL. You can find me on Twitter. My username there is C-E-E-O-R-E-O underscore. And I'm Adam Lear. I'm a staff software developer at Stack Overflow. You can find me on Twitter if you like retweets of memes at uh, AA Lear. Don't we all? All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. And we will talk to you soon.